Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of Music Is Not a Genre. This is also the 24th video edition of my subset, Music Is Everything, which if you are seeing this and not just hearing it, it's because you are on patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre, and I thank you incredibly for that. Uh, If you are here, welcome. And don't forget, you have uh, a dozen or more uh, interviews to watch that no one else can see, and a bunch of other uh, music videos, live music and other things like that, and early Patreon releases that you get as being a part of the Patreon family. And for those of you on any of the podcast platforms, thank you for listening, and please consider going to anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre to, uh, to donate and help support this podcast. Uh, and as always, I'm also on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, where you can uh, see almost all of this. Uh, let's, let's get right to it. It's been a while since I've done an opinion piece. Uh, and so far as I know, this format is going to be pretty much the same, uh, which is, as a reminder, uh, unlike the other versions of this podcast, I read... Uh, verbatim, something that I've written about this particular topic, and then I kind of go off the cuff afterwards and we discuss it, and as always, I tie um, music concepts together, and I also connect them to other things outside of the music world, especially in this edition. So this week's topic is titled, Out of Time But Not Out of Mind, Paying Attention to the Future Now. There's a lot of great music. There's even a lot of exceptional music. Just look at Rolling Stone's recent 500 lists and then think of all the albums and songs that weren't included but could or, in your opinion, should have been. Some of that music is judged to be great when it's first released. Others weren't seen as great until time moved on and they were put in context. For music to stand the test of time, it has to do three things. One, be good to begin with. This seems like a no-brainer, but there are plenty of albums judged to be great upon release that have since been revealed to have way less substance and quality. That first judgment might have been based on some novelty of sound, production, instrumentation, or context. All of those things tend to get subsumed into the new normal, at which point that first iteration is seen in a very different light, one that might show it was the newness and not the quality that made it so popular. Two, age well. Music that is its own thing, regardless of whether it touches in on trends, almost always ages well. Music that adheres too closely to current trends without breathing something more personal into it rarely holds up. That means it has to survive multiple shifts in sound and taste. Albums and artists go in and out of fashion all the time. Producers and listeners want 
for example, more minimalism. And yes, it's possible to have more of less. So definitely quote me on that. So artists who produce layered or complex music aren't as popular and vice versa. It's the albums that are considered great regardless of these changes that will be great forever. Three, reveal itself more fully over time. Tons of music can captivate an audience on first listen, especially if it's introducing something new or recontextualizing something else. Way less music bears repeated listening. That doesn't mean it's not good, just that it maybe doesn't have much else going on besides what we've already gotten from it. It's even rarer that repeated listening reveals the beauty of songs, performances, or production choices that weren't picked up on all those years prior. This week's podcast is all about that last idea. Let's say there's an album that's a huge success, popular and influential. Only a handful of the songs are hits, and those are the ones most people know. As time passes, most people forget the rest of the album, and even some of the hits if they're not perennials. But it wasn't just the hits that were critically acclaimed, it was the whole album. Odds are that every track on that album is good and worthy of another listen. When the album was released, current tastes dictated that certain songs would rise to the top. Good as the other songs might be, they didn't hit the cultural moment in the same way. They were somehow out of their time, going future too fast or retro too soon. As seen from the vantage of decades later, several things change. First, the out-of-timeness doesn't apply. Technology, sound, performance, and composition have moved on and added so much more that whatever differences there seem to be between one track or another are negligible. Second, our cultural touchstones are a totally different mix. They include a lot of what existed then, but in a new context, and they include a whole bunch of stuff that could only exist now. So those songs end up making a totally different impression. You might hear a song from that great album and wonder why you didn't love it the first time around. You might hear a song you know and love but never realized how awesome that keyboard part or backup harmony is. You feel you could never have picked up on any of this before because the context was different. You didn't know then what you know now. It took time and experience to show you what you missed and nothing less would do. But is that true? Some people did hear those things and did acknowledge their greatness when they were first released. Which means however difficult it might be to appreciate something not of its time, it's possible. It takes attention and openness to consider that what seems uncomfortable or extraneous might be what the future needs. It's like that for just about everything. Think of social change. Someone introduces an idea that seems so radical and forward-thinking that it's dismissed out of hand, or worse, never even paid attention to. That potential pioneer languishes in obscurity until time passes and their idea is put in a new context. Now that we've experienced so much more change, we understand how vital their idea was even then. But just like with music, there were people at that time who understood immediately how crucial it was. How necessary for the future, which again means it's possible. Not just for them, for all of us. There are ideas right now that deserve more attention and consideration. Ideas that seem radical or impossible to achieve that could be right around the corner if more of us listen, understand, and believe. Pick one idea you've heard in these last tumultuous two years, one that makes you uncomfortable or incredulous. Chances are that's our future. And the sooner we respect that, the sooner we get to something better.
for all of us. So you notice how dramatic that was? That's, so those of you who don't know everything about me, and I'm sure that's a very small percentage, uh, I also do voiceovers and things like that in narration. So when I'm reading something, I tend to get into that voice. Uh, and that's what I did there. But let's get to the topic. So let's talk first about the, you know, this in a music sense. Because that's, you know, it's where it starts here. Music is not a genre. And I want to highlight a phrase I used in there, uh, introducing something new or recontextualizing something else. So there have been plenty of times, and, uh, you know, I'll hopefully think of some actual concrete examples. And uh, if this rings a bell for you, please note these examples below, you know, comment on this, where I listen to a, a song from that I either had never heard before or I might have heard way back and am struck by something about it that seems like it could have been made now could have been you know it could have been made or it could have been made at some point in in, in its in its future but you'd have to imagine if you lived through it the first time that at the time it might have been considered weird or really out of place um and for some reason, the one song that comes to mind here is uh, on off the McCartney 2 album, which I think was 1980. Uh, there's a song called Temporary Secretary. And I don't think I actually heard that entire album when it came out. Uh, I heard certainly heard songs from it, but I wasn't at a point back then where I was listening to all of his solo material and all of that. But then I went through, as I do, with my chronography, look it up, it's a word now, and uh, listen to all of uh, every, every aspect of the Beatles, their work, all of their solo work, and all of that. And when I listened to that album, uh, I hadn't realized that it was intended to be based in electronics and all that and, and there were certain things about it that were experimental for him and that it was him just kind of doodling in the studio and I think uh, even at the time it was maybe liked but not you know revered and in hindsight it's it's seen as one of his best works and I think this song Temporary Secretary is a perfect example because it just sounds like you know I mean, it sounds like electronic music with a bunch of like, you know, computer doodaloos just kind of going through the whole thing. And he has this weird way of singing and, and a very interesting kind of harmony that, go, that, that happens in both his vocals and in the chords. And you can see why it w- wouldn't have garnered much attention back then. Because even though there were things coming up in the 80s especially that would be heavily electronic and have that kind of computer sound to it uh, to the point where it didn't just come from, you know, new wave artists, new wave British artists and, and, and all that, like Human League and stuff like that, but it even influenced like Prince's music when you think of maybe Computer Blue or something. That, that and, and yet at the, you know, let's say 1980, sure, yes, it exists. It existed before then if you count thing, you know, things like Kraftwerk and all of that. But it wasn't going to uh, hit the charts, let's say. And, and for me, when I heard that song, and I'm pretty sure for the first time just a few years ago, it, it not only 
was, uh, you know, sounded like, oh, wow, this is a really good song. And this, you know, this was probably pretty innovative for its time. But I think it's one of the best songs on the album. It's not a perfect example of what I'm talking about here, but it, but it, but it does go to this one idea of we can't always be as clued in to things of quality or things that matter or things that, that maybe don't stick with the general public as we would like because even the most open-minded of us who pay attention or are looking for things like that, just by default, without even knowing it, dismiss certain things uh, for, those, all, for all of those reasons. They, they don't fit in the time that they were made. We want things to be successful. We want them to be popular, not just because that's a great thing for the artist and people like popular stuff, but because it, it gives us a sense that it's being shared by a bunch of other people. And that idea of being able to share your music experience in whatever way, whether it's immediately in the moment or just, you know, or these days online and, and kind of riffing with somebody on, oh, I love that song or I love that album, or just being part of like a club or a group or, uh, you know, fan club and all that stuff. That's, that's huge. Uh, I think no matter what kind of a music listener you are, even if you're somebody who just listens in private and that's your thing, when you discover somebody who's listening to the same thing, it gives you a little spark. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, a future episode of this podcast, and in particular this Music is Everything subset, is going to be on something I call the Share Tingles, uh, which basically is the idea that you can, you can love something and have absorbed it and, and listened to it or watched it 20 times and still love it. But the minute you share it with somebody who hasn't heard it before and, and, you, and you see them liking it, you feel it like it's brand new all over again. But anyway, that's another topic. Back, you know, back to this. Um, let's, let's give a perfect example uh, if I can think of another one. Yes, okay, so Glass Houses. Uh, Billy Joel album. I, you know, it's hard for me to, to pick a favorite Billy Joel album, but I would say that that usually comes back, you know, at a certain, you know, every year or two or three as my favorite because it hit me at a time when I was really receptive to that and I like the tightness of it and the production and certainly the songwriting and the performance. Uh, and You've got all the the big songs on there. You you know you may be right. It's still rock and roll to me. All the all the and even some of the other ones that I for some reason remember, like Cet Etoile, I I think because it was maybe a B side of a single. I don't know why. All I know is that I still own that album, but on eight track. So uh, you know can't hear that. And uh, what I didn't remember, even though I know I listened to that whole album, was a song called All for Lena. And then I then I did my chronography of Billy Joel a couple of years ago, and that song popped up, and I thought to myself, why did I not love this song when it came out? You know, and, and yeah, I think at the time I was young, maybe I wasn't ready for whatever it was providing. But that that's a perfect example of, okay, you can excuse youth and all of that, but if you're an adult and you're listening to not just an album that you like, but an album from an artist that you like, it, the hope is that you're open enough to listen to, you know, an alternate track on that album, an album track, they'll call it, 
because it's not a single or, or you know, maybe uh, isn't concise the way singles are, that your mind is open enough to say, oh, wow, there's, this is really offering something, you know, different and, and new, you know. And, and, and what I think that leads into is, are a couple of things. First of all, that idea that, um, it, well, what was it that I said, forward too fast or retro too soon is all over the place in music. So uh, right now, 80s retro is a huge thing. In fact, 90s retro is kind of a a huge thing. And yet, and I've said this before, I heard producers in particular and artists doing 80s retro as early as 20 plus years ago. And there are a couple of things that might have bubbled to the surface then as novelties, but mostly that they were kind of obscure and not popular because it was retro too soon. It was an artist who knew that the, the future was coming and that in this case, the future was the past uh, and was, you know, jumping the gun on it. And to the artist's credit, you know, there's no reason to say, oh, I'm going to wait until things are popular. That's one of the reasons why things like that become popular again is because artists and producers like that do that in advance of their popularity. And they kind of put that into the minds of other producers and artists. And that's kind of the retro too soon idea. And then, I mean, the future too fast is pretty, that's pretty self-explanatory. So you have albums and this actually leads to another, I think, potential topic for uh, my podcast, which I have written down, which is, um, I don't remember the title, but the idea of is first best always best best? So you you know you go back and you listen to an album that was pioneering for some reason and ahead of its time and like and kind of like I said you know that that the time if it was popular let's say it was popular it was judged to be great because of that kind of pioneering influence and I think because it influenced so many other artists afterwards you have to give it that credit but it could maybe be compared in some ways to uh, you know albums and songs that came after it that were pro- that were ver- very likely better because they learned from this album and so it puts it in a slightly different different light but the point there being and and an even greater point is let's say that this pioneering album wasn't popular at all then several years later you get a bunch of bands doing the same exact thing and because artists in in, in general tend to seek out things that a lot of other people don't hear because of the level of curiosity and wanting to absorb everything. They did hear that, and they were influenced by that. It gave them the idea of, oh, I can do that, and let me do it this way. And, and so there have been plenty of artists who were ahead of their time who didn't become popular until later. In fact, there have been things like albums released several years after they were made because the artist... It wasn't popular at the time, and then when they became popular, they said, oh, well, you have to hear this. Um, a weird, this is a weird example, but I'm going to say it. And this, is, and this goes to the second idea, which is uh, that artists who do something that is considered out of character for them, that that work is often dismissed. So let's say an artist establishes themselves as somebody who does... Uh, kind of R&B-influenced pop rock, uh, like, let's say, Hall & Oates. And they had a few, you know, minor hits, 
in the 70s, but hadn't broken big. And then Daryl Hall goes off with frickin' Robert Fripp from King Crimson and elsewhere and does this experimental pop album that has some of that same sound that Hall & Oates does but goes in wild directions in 77. And the record company's like, we can't release this. And I mean, why? You know, there are plenty of people out there who would enjoy it Maybe not necessarily the core audience of Hall & Oates at the time, but who knows? They're making that decision preemptively because it didn't fit the format and the image of the artist. But then what happens? They start getting more hits. They become more popular. And three years later, the record company releases the album. They're like, oh, well, if you like that, then you might like this. And now the artist has enough cachet to say, well, you know, we can let this float and it's not going to ruin their career which it wouldn't have ruined their career to begin with. It would have been maybe thought at worst as an interesting curiosity uh, of expanding what this artist could do, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of artists suffer from being judged in that way. Uh, mostly, and I will say this with a, maybe a little caveat, but mostly by the industry, mostly by you know, record companies and, and distributors and other outlets who get music to people, advertisers certainly, uh, they, they prejudge music as, well, this won't fly. The, the internet has neutralized some of that, but it's neutralized it in a listening sense, in, this, in a sharing sense. It has not neutralized it in a monetary sense. And I think in some ways it's actually made it worse. And what I'm saying is those artists who are doing things that are that are seem to be out of touch with what's going on now or out of touch with something they've done before are dismissed and and not paid attention to by the entities that would help make them money you know that would help give them a living and and that doesn't mean that other people don't find it and listen to it and love it these days because we have that capacity now but those are two different things, and they're, they're, they're two different qualities of respect. There's the recognition and, and kind of, uh, you know, respect of allowing or helping somebody earn a living that they deserve. But then there's also the, the respect of just enjoying the artistry of it and the, and the listening experience. And, and that, to me, ties in directly with what I'm talking about with the world at large. And I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna jump right in with a couple of things that I think are still considered controversial, uh, rather than you know beat around the bush. And those are things that one of which has been around for a while, and one was mostly introduced recently, but both came into prominence in the last year. And they are defund the police and uh, reparations. And and yes, so in particular. These both have to do with race relations in the United States. That is, that is, that's by accident. It's not, there are so many other social issues, you know, name 20 of them, where there are forward-thinking people who are trying to propose an idea that they know would, let's say universal health care is another perfect example, would work in the future, either because it's worked for other countries or just because they can see the future in that way and understand the mechanics of it and know that the overall benefit far outweighs any cost. But again, only a handful of people 
you know, in the greater scheme of things, agree with that and see that as something that isn't just this wild future idea that we may, you know, get to in 20 years or never, but that it's something that's actually not just fair and right, but viable, something that can actually be done, that isn't as wild as it sounds. And you take something like, you know, gay marriage, when anybody would have mentioned that in the 80s, 90s, before that, and frankly, even in, in, in the O's, most people, let's say, well, I'll say this, the percentage of, of people who agreed with that being legal did increase over the years. But most people, and even some of those people who agreed with it, would have judged that to be just crazy. Not, be, you know, whether they agree with it or not. Because how can that possibly be passed into law in this day and age in this country? And yet you had people, you know, um, advocating for it decades before or a few years before, and then all of a sudden it happens. So that idea that seemed wild and, and, and completely untenable became the future. And I would contend that things like uh, universal health care, defund the police reparations, are the future. They're going to happen. They may not happen in 5, 10, or 20 years, but they are going to happen in some capacity. It may not be exactly how we see it today, but they'll happen. And those are ideas that seem wildly out of place and untenable to the majority of people. When you say defund the police, it's a, there's a very violent reaction among a lot of people because, you know, if you respect the police, you say, well, they, they protect us, etc., etc., not understanding that there's more nuance and that that phrase may be a trigger now because of how it's phrased. Um, and I've got, let's just say, a ton of opinions as to um, the state of policing in this country, not just today, but from the very beginning, from its inception. It's something that I have a problem with. And funny enough, and don't ask me why, I had a problem with it when I was a child. I remember thinking these things as a child. I had no reason to. It's not like somebody would profile me or I'm in any danger, you know, the, the way so many other people are. But there was something in my gut that was saying there's something inequitable about this. And, and uh, what that really means, though, for defunding, in, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean, you know, there's a sliding scale of what defunding means. But what the most, I think, uh, popular version of it is shifting funds to other organizations that do like mental health and things better than the police could do and allowing uh, the police to do what they do better, if you agree with that. And hopefully the resources that are freed up would give them maybe the tools and training to do it better and, and the learning and all the things that need to happen desperately. Uh, you could say the same thing about reparations. There have been plenty of them. Social Security was probably considered a crazy idea before it became the norm. And there were quite a few things in the 30s and 40s, uh, and like you know, Roosevelt's uh, terms, that were passed that are just standard now that were considered ridiculous by a lot of people before then. You know, that kind of social safety uh, network, uh, safety net, and all of that. Um, and, and universal health care is easier to argue because 
it exists in so many other countries in, in successful forms. Not perfect by any means, but way better and more equitable than anything that happens in this country. And when you, when you realize the quick tangent that money and the wanting to keep your money and your property is, is really the thing that stops all of these ideas from becoming a reality. And I will be happy to go into that for, for all that reparations is obvious. Um, but even defund the police, there's a, you know, systemic racism has a way of keeping the money with the people who already have it and keeping it away from the people who don't, which was similar to what I was saying in my episode about the hives and funding the arts and, and all of that. It's just throughout so many issues in this country and in the world that money drives it. Certainly universal health care is another one of those. That's just a, a food for thought there. Um, but hopefully you can see the connection that I'm trying to make here, which is that we all have the capacity to kind of open our eyes and ears and uh, that thing that we hear, whether it's a song or a portion of a song or an idea that comes from uh, society or government or you know or any of that philosophy, uh, is first strikes us as out of place and, and makes us uncomfortable and, and, and we maybe even laugh at it or scoff at it, that we can look at it in a different way, maybe step back and say, if we take this out of context, just judge it on its own merits, what do we really think of it? Because I think the more people who do that, the more we start to make those connections between each other. And the more connections we make between each other on any topic, the stronger that topic gets and the more likely it is to make an impact on the world, to come to fruition, or however you want to say it. And, and um, that directly connects to my entire uh, objective, or set of objectives here with this podcast, which is, as always, are, as always, music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much for listen, listening and watching and being a part of the Patreon family. Hello, people watching out there. I hope you like my two lamps. That's It's a metaphor for something. You tell me what it's a metaphor for. And uh, listening on all of the podcast uh, platforms out there and checking me out on YouTube. And I will talk to you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
PantheonPodcast.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.